A few years ago, our family went to Disney World, and uh, that was fantastic. We went to Hollywood Studios, and they've got a ride there called the Tower of Terror. You might be familiar with the ride. I had only been on it one other time before. I had been to Disney World uh, previously when that ride was there and rode the ride, and it made a huge impression on me, partly because I don't like rides, like scary rides, and it was super scary. Uh, I thought aptly named the Tower of Terror, and it sort of was burned into my brain, this ride. So of course, uh, Lisa and I go, this time with our four children, and I think to myself, they should go on this ride. I went on it, they should do it. And you know, kind of this badge of honor, like, hey, look, we've made it through this really scary ride, and I thought, I don't like rides, but maybe if I make them go on these scary rides, maybe they'll like them. That seems like the most foolish kind of thinking, but it was the thinking nonetheless. So Lisa, who's not really as scared of those kinds of rides, she and I kind of cajole our four kids. Look, we're going to do this together. We're going to be, we're going to do this as a family. It's going to be fun. Uh, Yeah, so having been sort of scared myself, I'm very empathetic to the idea that, okay, look, this might not be great. So I'm going to, I'm like, I pull everybody aside. I'm going to level with them. Look. I'm not going to lie to you. It's scary. But I've been on it before. It's scary. But what the ride does, it picks you up. It's like an elevator kind of thing. It picks you up. And then it drops you and you free fall. But then it catches you, picks you up, drops you again, and then you're done. It's two drops and you're done. And so I say to uh, my kids, like, look, I've done it. Two drops and we're done. So we get on. I probably failed to mention to them that the whole ride is in the dark. So I can already feel the nervousness as the doors close and you're kind of in this little, you're supposed to be like an elevator thing and you're kind of going around. And then you get to the point where you're going up and, and George is sitting next to me. And so I'm like, two drops and we're done. You know, we're just, just hold on. We can get through this again, I think, as long as you know what's coming. So I'm saying it to him. I'm saying it to myself. Two drops and we're done. So uh, we get lifted up. And uh, I'm like, all right, here it comes. And then, yes, it does drop us. And it drops us. And everybody's screaming. I'm screaming. George is screaming. Lots of screaming. And then the ride catches us. And I think to myself, huh, that's not nearly as long a drop as I remember. Because, I mean, I hadn't been on it for years, but it was burned in my brain. Uh, I was like, I must have gotten a lot braver since then. So I lean over in my very brave voice. I'm like, see, George, not that bad. I told you it's going to be okay. I was like, just going to take us up one more time, drop us, and we're done. So indeed, the ride does grab us, lifts us back up. uh, And again, I feel the tension. I mean, I feel it in his arms. I feel it in mine. Drops us again, screaming, catches us again. And so I say, look, we did it. Good job. Well done. We made it. Except... The ride grabbed us again and lifted us back up. And even though it's dark, I can feel George looking at me like, you said two drops and it's done. But this time, I'm not worried about George. I'm like, did I misremember? What is going on? So I'm just praying for myself at this point. I'm like, Lord, please let this ride end. So we get picked back up and we get dropped again. And I'm like, okay, that's, uh, maybe I misremembered by one. I didn't think I could have. 
So I'm about to lean over and go, see, we made it. And it grabs us again and lifts us back up. And at this point, I am like, do I start crying in front of this child? How is this? This is not going well. And so I'm playing, please, Lord, stop this ride. Please, Lord, stop this ride. So it drops us again. Okay. It picks us up one more time. I'm like, what is going on? You know, everyone's, at least for people like me, great fear. The ride is broken. We're going to die. We're going to do this forever. So I'm sure George is yelling at me at this point, but I can't hear it at this point. I'm yelling at myself like, what is going on? So five times we get dropped. And so the last time it catches us and then the ride is over. So... I'm breathing heavy, just like I am now. And uh, we're all still in the dark, so I'm just looking straight ahead. I know what's coming. And so we get off the ride, and he looks at me like, two drops, and we're done. I was like, I don't know what happened. Well, it turns out, and some of you who are familiar with this ride probably started laughing at whatever point I said, two drops, and you're done. I'd only been on it one time, and on the one time it was two drops and you were done. Apparently, the ride is random, and it chooses a random number of times to pick you up and drop you. Having only been on it once, and styling myself an expert, having been on it only once, I was sure every time must be two drops. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you're going through something hard, it's nice to know there's an end that's coming. And I don't know about you, but I do like to kind of psych myself up and say, okay, look, this is gonna be hard, this is scary, but we're gonna get through this and we just count the seconds until it's over. Like, look, we can make this just two drops and we're done. And I was like, I think I'm telling myself this as much as I'm telling my children. Now, thinking about that and sharing that story again, which I haven't thought about in a long time, I started to wonder this week, is this something of what Jesus is doing when he's on earth the first time constantly telling us three days, the son of man is going to be in the earth three days, he's going to die and then three days later be raised from the dead. Now, of course, the main reason why he says three days, three days, three days, three days is for us so that we will believe. But I have to wonder if a side benefit is Jesus telling himself it's just going to be three days. Like there, after Good Friday, Easter is coming. After the crucifixion, there's going to be a resurrection. If he himself is having to remind himself, this will not last forever. There is an end point to the suffering. Now, our first inclination might be to think, oh, Jesus doesn't need that. Well, no, he does. Please don't miss. He's human. As totally and absolutely and completely human as you and I are. And the idea of facing death, of having his father turn his back on him, of bearing the weights of the, of the sins of the whole world, that is a frightening proposition. And so I think to myself, he's probably reminding himself it's only going to last three days. Between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that is going to be difficult. But there's an end that's coming to that. I say that because all humans, Jesus in his human nature included, we all need help 
to endure suffering. We all need a reminder that somebody's in control. We all need to be reminded that, you know what, on the other side of this crucifixion is the resurrection. On the other side of this scary ride is the opportunity to say we made it through. On the other side are blessings. And so what I have for us this morning is a message from that same Jesus. The same Jesus who had to make it through the crucifixion to the resurrection. The same Jesus who said three days and then I'm going to be raised from the ground has a message for us today for the suffering that we're in the midst of. So I'd like to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, it's page 992 in the church Bibles. And this is a message in Revelation 2 that Jesus has for those who are suffering. Now, whenever I say that, like a message for those who are suffering, it does introduce some questions like, well, what kind of suffering counts? Because there's all sorts of suffering in the world. Sometimes you suffer for sins. Sometimes you suffer just because you're living in life and life is difficult. Sometimes you experience persecution. Lots of suffering What sort of suffering is Jesus talking about in this message? Well, I'm going to let him decide who he wants to speak this to and the way he wants to do it, but perhaps one thing I can say that might be useful is last week we heard the first message from Jesus to us, which was, repent of your lack of love for me. And if you came last week or you read through that passage or you listened last week, and you've not yet repented of a lack of love for Jesus, if you've not yet repented of letting your love grow cold, my advice to you is not to move on to the second message until you've done the first message. That if you're still on Jesus saying to you, hey, I've not fallen out of love with you, you've fallen out of love with me, then stick in that first message until you're ready to repent. You don't have to have everything all fixed, you don't have to have made everything right, But if you've not yet repented, I think you're still on the first message. If, however, you came last week or you've come face to face with this message and you have repented and you have said to Jesus, man, my love for you is not what it needs to be. Or if when you came, Jesus said, I think your love is fine. You don't have to repent for this. We're doing well. You and I are doing well together. If that's your situation, I do think you're ready for this message. And so whatever suffering you may be going through now without having to classify it and categorize it, if it's persecution, yes, of course, Jesus is talking to you. Sickness, difficulty, trouble, whatever it may be, I think Jesus has a message for those of us who are in the midst of suffering. If you've not paid attention to the first message, you can't skip that one to get to the second one. If you have listened to the first message, I think the second one is for everybody in the room. Okay, let's listen to the message. Remember, Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. He has seven messages to deliver. We looked at the first last week. Here's the second. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Holly read us this passage. It is a message to the church of Smyrna. And with all the messages, Jesus introduces himself. And he pulls out something of who he is from the description that we are given in Revelation 1. 
And here he says two things about who he is to remind us, to prepare us for the message we're about to hear. Number one, I am the first and the last, Jesus says, which means he's in control of all things. First and last is sort of a way of saying Jesus is control. There's nothing that comes before him. There's nothing after him. He is the strongest, he is the best, he is the first, he is the last. It's just a code for saying he's in charge of everything. Secondly, these are the words of him who died and came to life again. Jesus wants to remind us before we listen to this message that he knows what it's like to suffer that he went through the worst possible suffering that anybody could imagine, bearing this weight of the sins of the whole world and having God turn his back on Jesus. And so from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, which we don't know exactly what happened, Jesus was in the midst of great, incredible suffering. And he knows what that's like. He also knows the blessings that come. That Easter Sunday couldn't happen without Good Friday. But Easter Sunday is a day of incredible joy and blessing. And so Jesus is reminding us before we hear his words of encouragement about suffering, he tells us, I'm the one that's in control and I understand how suffering works. So let's listen to him as he tells us that he's in control. Verse nine, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So here Jesus mentions afflictions. That's just the general word for suffering. He mentions poverty, being poor in this country, being poor anywhere in the world is its own set of suffering. And then he mentions persecution. So we've got lots of different kinds of suffering that he's talking about here. But what's so fascinating to me is he says, it's gonna last for 10 days. Now what's fascinating about that is you and I are not supposed to read that passage and think, oh good, my suffering, whatever you're going through right now, whatever I'm going through, it's only going to last 10 days. We're not supposed to think that. What we are supposed to think is that Jesus knows exactly how long our suffering will last, that he is in control of all things. The reason why Jesus says three days, three days, three days, three days from Good Friday to Easter Sunday is because God has determined it's three days. It's not going to be four days. It's not going to be five days. There is an end point and God is in control of when suffering begins and God is in control of when suffering ends. When the children of Israel go into exile for their own sins, God says it's going to be 70 years. It's 70 years. When they go into the wilderness, again, because of their own sin, God says it's going to be 40 years. In the book of Revelation, when we get to the tribulation, we've not gotten there yet either in the book or in human history. God has already announced it's seven years. 
And the point is, Jesus is in control of the amount of suffering that we go through. He is in control of when it starts and when it ends. For this church of Smyrna in their historical situation, it was going to be 10 days. The encouragement you and I are supposed to draw from that is that Jesus is saying, I have the start date for your suffering and I have the end date and it's already fixed in time. Even before you entered into it, Jesus had already decided it's going to last this long. Now sometimes, like the just two drops or three days, God actually tells us how long it's going to be. Maybe in your third grade classroom, uh, your teacher this week redid the seating chart. And maybe she does that every month. And now the month, this month, you're sitting with a couple of kids who you don't really like all that much because they're regularly teasing you for going to church. Maybe Jesus is whispering in your ear, it's only for a month. I know it's gonna be hard, but it's for a month. And he's telling you, you know, a month from now, she's gonna change that chart again and you're gonna sit with other people. That's Jesus saying, look, I know how long this is going to last. Stick with me. We can get through this together. And even though every day for the next month might be hard, Jesus is saying, I'm with you. We're going to get through this, and in a month, we're going to change. Maybe you're a caregiver for someone who is dying, and it's just been incredibly difficult. And recently, you've gone to the doctor, and the doctor said, look, pulled you aside and said, it's just going to be a few more months. It's hard news to hear, but that may be God saying to you, hey, look, there is an end date that's coming. And he's trying to tell us ahead of time, hey, look, we can get through this. Hold on. Now, if you're in the middle of suffering right now and you're like, well, I'd like an end date, ask him. He has one. Maybe he'll tell it to you. He often does. He may say, you know what? The end is coming. It's coming soon. He may say it's a year from now. He may say, he may bring something to mind to help you to understand. Oh, you know what? I think this is going to come and I think that's going to help in the midst of the suffering. He may tell you he is in control. He may not. Many of us are in the midst of difficult things and we have no idea when they're going to end. But please don't take from that that he doesn't know the end date. He's already fixed it. There is a day in which the suffering will end. You say, well, if he doesn't tell me that day, what good does that do? Well, what he does tell us is he has a message for every single one of us in the midst of suffering that reminds us that he's in control. Even if he doesn't tell us the day it's going to end, and it's a message he wants you to hear this morning. It's from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And there Jesus says, no testing. Some of you may be familiar with the word temptation, which you might read there. It's the same word in Greek. No testing or trial has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested or tried or tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. To some people, God says, here's the end date. To all of us, God says, in the midst of suffering, I'm in control of the amount and I will not let it be more than you can handle. He has a date fixed for it to end. He may not tell us that date, but what he does tell us is, I've got this. I'm in control. I promise you, it will not be more than you can handle. Now, I've been here with you. I know that it feels like it is more than you can handle. But God is saying, I swear to you, I will not let it be more than you can handle. And this morning, you may feel like you've been pushed right to the edge. You may even think you've gone over the edge. And Jesus wants to say to you, but I've got you in the palm of my hand. I will not let, I will not allow it to be more than you can handle. He's in control of the amount of suffering. It will not go on one day more than he has determined. And it will not, will not be more than we can handle. He also reminds us how much he's in control. He says, I know that you, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. This is Jesus standing in front of us saying, I know about the slander you are experiencing, and I know Satan is going to put some of you in prison. Now, what is not going on is Satan has not come to Jesus and given him, hey, here's an FYI. Just wanted to let you know, I'm going to cause Calvary Church to have 10 miserable days going forward. He doesn't have the authority to do that. What this passage is saying is Jesus is saying, look, I signed off on everything you're going through. It had to first come through me before it came to you. Satan does not have the ability to test you or to tempt you or to put you in prison or to put you through suffering. He cannot touch your flesh and give you sickness. He cannot destroy things in your life. He can't do anything without Jesus signing off on it. And Jesus is reminding us this morning, whatever it is we're going through, he's like, it didn't just happen by chance. You're not just kind of in the middleness and Jesus doesn't kind of jump in the boat with us and go, man, what? how did we get here? What's going on? No, 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 that's the wrong picture. The picture is of, of the God who is in charge of all things, who says not a single thing will come into your life that I don't sign off on. It will not last a day longer than I have determined. And it will not be more than you can handle. Amen. So Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm in charge of it all. And then he reminds us, I know about suffering. I am well acquainted with suffering. It says in Isaiah about Jesus, he wasn't sort of a visitor to suffering. He lived in it. Like his life was covered in suffering. 
He was well familiar with suffering. And he says, I know that there are blessings that come as a result of suffering. Easter Sunday happens because of Good Friday. And so in this passage, Jesus spells out four blessings that you and I experience as a result of suffering. Three of them happen now. One of them will come in the future. Again, the book of Revelation, you think it's all about the future. It's about now. And Jesus says there are things that are going on now that are blessings. And you and I need to be reminded of those because that will help us endure suffering. The first blessing, verse five, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. The first blessing is riches now. Not just in the future, now. You are rich now. Jesus says, he doesn't say to them, hey, you're well on your way to getting some riches. No, no, no. You and I are rich right now. Now, what does that mean? Well, to understand what it means, it's helpful to compare what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna with another message he has to the church at Laodicea. We're gonna look at this message in a couple of weeks when we get to Revelation 3. But if you let your eyes look over to Revelation 3, 17 and 18, I also have it on the screen, we can compare what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna and what he says to the church at Laodicea to understand what's he talking about with rich. The church in Laodicea, you say, that's the church, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, meaning they got a lot of money. They got big houses, they got fancy cars, they got lots of technology. They're a church with cash. But to them, Jesus says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. The church in Smyrna is rich. The church in Laodicea is poor. What does this mean? The church in Smyrna has poverty, meaning they are financially not well off. And Jesus says, but don't worry, you may be money poor, but you are rich in character, in wisdom, and in transformation. You are rich now. To the church at Laodicea, he says, you guys got tons of cash. You got lots of retirement accounts. You got plenty of cars. You got boats. You got cottages. You got all sorts of stuff. But you are, and man, are these tough words, wretched, pitiful, and poor. This is Jesus saying this. We're going to hear these words spoken to us in a few weeks. They are very sobering. He says, look, you think you've got it together, but you are poor, flabby, weak Christians. But not those who are suffering. To those who are suffering, Jesus says, you are rich now. And you may not see it on the outside, but in the things that matter, character, wisdom, transformation, if you are going through suffering for Jesus' sake now, please, please hear him saying to you, you're rich. 
Like he's not blowing smoke. He doesn't tell everybody they're rich. We just heard him say as hardly, as hard and harsh as you can say it to somebody that they're not rich. But if you are in the midst of suffering, hear him saying to you, you are rich. You are rich in stuff that matters. You are rich in stuff that is far better than silver or gold. You are wealthy in God. Don't be afraid. The suffering that you're going through is making you rich. Rich beyond your wildest imaginations. First blessing is you're rich. Now, second blessing, commendation now, praise now. It's really interesting. You've got seven messages in these two chapters. These seven messages are written to seven historical churches, but also all seven of them are for us today to try to hear what Jesus is saying to us today. We looked at the one to Ephesus. We're in the one to Smyrna. We've got five more to go. If you read through all seven messages, two of them have nothing but positive things in them. The church at Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. You read the message and there's nothing negative in there at all. The other five have some negative things. They also have some positive things, but negative things, some very strong negative things. Like we saw last week, you've fallen out of love with Jesus. But two of the letters, two of the messages have nothing negative in them at all. Smyrna and Philadelphia. What's interesting is that both those churches were small, poor, and not influential. Of the seven churches in their historical setting, these were not the big churches. These were not the rich churches. These were not the churches that everybody looked to and said, oh yeah, that's the church at Ephesus. Great job at the church at Laodicea. And what's so fascinating is the two churches that get unadulterated praise are the ones who are suffering. Both Smyrna and Philadelphia are suffering churches. And what this says is, you and I, we've got the wrong grading scale. We think that a church's size or its numbers or the budget that it has or the building that it's in or the number of programs or the number of mentions it gets on social media, we think that's what makes a church praiseworthy. And Jesus says, that's just not the grading scale I'm using. The grading scale he is using at the top of the grading scale is this. How much are you suffering? How much are you suffering? Those who are suffering a lot for Jesus are commended by Jesus now. And the world may say, well, you're not a very influential Christian. And the world may say, well, you're not really sort of well-known Christian. Or the world may say, well, you're not a Christian that everybody's talking about or gets to do this or is in charge of big groups or everybody comes and looks to. Don't worry about what anybody else is saying. Jesus is saying to you right now, if you are suffering, well done. That is the grading scale. And as hard as it may be to hear, if you are suffering little for Jesus, there is little commendation from Jesus. And if you are suffering a lot for Jesus, there is a lot of commendation. This is what makes suffering a blessing. Is if you have been asked by Jesus to walk a hard road. 
if those third graders are making fun of you for going to church all the time, if you've been asked to walk a difficult road with a sickness, if you're being asked to be the only Christian in your family, if you're being asked to walk a difficult road with having special needs or other difficult situations, Jesus is saying, look, I know the rest of the world is grading you out as perhaps failing, but I'm telling you, you are doing great. So the second blessing, not only riches now, praise now, now. Hear Jesus saying to you, well done. The third blessing of suffering is assurance now. Verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death refers to hell. This is the lake of fire. This is Jesus going to tell us about this at the end of the book of Revelation. People are going to stand before him and he's going to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And the point is, well, how do you know? How do you know ahead of time if you're going to be the one who's assigned to hell and, or if you're going to be the one who's assigned to heaven? Jesus says the way that you can know, not what causes you to go to heaven, faith in Jesus is what causes you to go to heaven. How you can be assured that you're on the track for heaven is suffering. If you are suffering for Jesus' name, and you are enduring that suffering, there is no greater assurance that you are going to spend eternity with him forever. Now be very careful with this point. The corollary is not true. That if you're not suffering or not enduring suffering, that that means you're going to hell. The corollary is not true. If you are running away from suffering or you want nothing to do with suffering or you're suffering because you continue to reject love for Jesus or whatever it may be, we don't know what's going to go on. Like We don't know what's happening. But if you are suffering for Jesus, you can be assured the second death, eternal separation from God has no say, no power, no hold on you whatsoever. And so the third blessing of suffering now is assurance. You may think my life is absolutely miserable right now. And I grant you that it probably is. But you can have absolute assurance because it's so difficult now, because Jesus has asked you to walk such a hard road now. You can be assured you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. You have no fear of hell. The fourth and final blessing This one's in the future. Be faithful, end of verse 10, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He's not talking about eternal life there. Eternal life comes by faith, not by enduring suffering. What is he talking about? He's talking about what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, you just kind of think it to your heart. How many of you think, man, what I am going through is not light or momentary? That's because we can't even grasp how great 
the riches are that are coming. If we get to the point of realizing that the worst thing that we're going through, and I know what it's like where you feel like you're holding on by your fingernails. You're like, I cannot even take another step forward. Jesus is saying, I know you think it is horrendous and right now it is. But imagine how great it's going to be because when you see the glory that will come, the stuff you're going through now that you think is going to destroy you and kill you, that will feel light and momentary. Imagine how great that glory must be if you would ever call the suffering you're having right now light and momentary. And the promise is, suffering now earns us eternal glory and riches and rewards. So Jesus' message to you today and to me today, he's saying, I'm in control of all things. I'm in control of the amount of suffering. I'm in control of exactly what comes into your life. I have been through suffering and I'm promising you there is blessing through this. Riches now, commendation now, assurance now, and eternal glory that will far outstrip anything you're going through now. What then is our response to this message? Last sentence of verse 10. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful in the midst of it. What does that mean? Just keep believing. When Jesus says, I'm in control, to be faithful is to say, okay, I don't see it, but I believe it. When Jesus says, I am with you, to be faithful is to say, I don't feel it, but I believe it. To be faithful is to continue to believe even in the midst of horrific, difficult, hard things that this is actually for our good. To continue to believe that God will not leave us or abandon us. To continue to believe that he is seated right next to us. To be faithful is to just try to put one foot in front of the other. To just try to get through the next day or the next hour or the next minute. To be faithful is when you can't even move to simply keep believing. When you can't get out of bed, when you can't take one more breath, when you can't go forward at all, keep believing. Be faithful, Jesus. As you're doing great, you've gotten to this point. Just be faithful. To be faithful is to keep your eyes on him in the midst of it. Because when you get out of the boat and you're walking on the water, the wind and the waves are huge and they are scary. And if you look at them, you and I will sink. That's why Jesus in Revelation 1 gives us this very visual description of himself. It's to help us fix our eyes on him. Look and see that shining face. Look and see those blazing eyes. Look and see that robe and that sash and the messages in his hand. Look and see the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, be faithful, just look at me. I'm in charge of the the wind and the waves, still know his name. To be faithful is just to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because when we think about the circumstances, when we think about the suffering, when we think about all those things, we do begin to sink. We think I'm drowning. We think I'll never get through this. And this morning, Jesus brought you here to say, listen to me. I'm in control of all suffering. It will not last a single day longer than I have determined. It will never be more than you can handle. You are becoming rich. 
you are receiving praise, you are being given assurance, and you have glory that is coming that far outstrips anything you can imagine. And our response is to hear his voice, fix our eyes on him and say, help my unbelief, Lord, I'm trying. See, riding through life with Jesus is not like riding on the Tower of Terror with me. <laughs> this is not Jesus' sort of first time through. He, he built the ride. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly how it works. He knows exactly what you can handle. He is in control of everything. When he is sitting next to you, he's not nervous about what's coming. He's not praying, hoping it doesn't go badly. He is in absolute and total control. And while you and I are going around in the dark, not sure what's coming, feeling like we're free falling, just feel Jesus' hand on yours saying, I've got this. Hear Jesus' voice whispering in your ear. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.